Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from our series on the book of Ruth. For more information about CBC, or how to get plugged in, or to listen to another sermon, visit us on the website, cbcsavannah.com. just our, our hope, your empty tomb, our just our confidence this morning as we come forgiven and with a future and with a, uh, a knowing where we're going and knowing what is ahead and knowing that no matter what is going on in our lives right now, there is just something we cannot fathom coming. Uh, and, and so that's very tangible to some of us. It's not to others. But I just pray that as we continue in Ruth, as we continue to work through this great story, that your faithfulness, your loyal love, your, your hesed would just be, just like the last verse, that shall be our, th- redeeming love will be our theme until we die. That that would be our story, that that would be who we are and, and what we talk about and what we celebrate as, as a church when we gather and even when we scatter. I pray specifically for your, our time and your word. It is living, it is active, Lord. I, I confess that your word is perfect. It is true. There is not one error in it. It cannot have errors because it is from you and you are true. And so I pray as I speak forth your truth that you would help me because uh, I am a man of deceit and lies and I need you, the God of truth, uh, to speak through me. And so please help me by your spirit so that your flock, your sheep, are equipped, are fed, are, are, are full, uh, and that we are, there's just a result of joy in, your, in this place. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Thanks, you guys open your Bibles if you have them to Ruth 2. If you don't, there should be one in front of you. Um, you can take that one home. On that Bible, I think we're on page like 222 or 223 in that area. Uh, last week, we started this brand new series on this book. So I told you last week, it's, it's the perfect story as it's been called, many facets, many, and there's all sorts of different themes to this story. You know, you could talk about finding a wife and all these other things, but really the main theme that we've been talking about and that we're going to see constantly revolves around this word hesed, this, this Hebrew word that, that's translated multiple ways in your Bible, but the idea is loyal, faithful, steadfast, even stubborn love. That this is a book about God's stubborn love towards his people. And as we looked at the first chapter last week, the the way the book begins, it doesn't feel like God is loyal. It doesn't feel like he has been faithful. So we are introduced to this sweet little couple, Elimelech, his name means my God is king, and Naomi, who means sweet or pleasant. Call her cutie pie, sweetie pie, whatever you want. And, and they live in this, this town called Bethlehem, which is the house of bread. Well, the problem is there's no bread in the house of bread. So Elimelech moves his little family down to a land called Moab, which means who's your daddy? Right? And so here they are living, my God is king and cutie pie, and who's your daddy? And, and the irony is that Elimelech takes his family there to save his family, to save his life, and he loses it. He dies. 
And so Naomi is a widow, but at least she's got her two boys with cool sounding, if you're a nerd, Klingon-y sounding names, Malon and Kilion. You're like, yeah, I'm gonna name my kid that. Don't name your kid that. Because it means sick and frill. So it's like, it's like sending your kid off to high school and his name means puke or something, right? Okay, don't, don't do that to your kid. But these two boys take their own wives from Moabite women and then we see tragedy hits them. Frail and sick die. So you have sweetness or pleasant or cutie pie living in the land of who's your daddy and she's got no hope now. She's got no husband, she's got no sons, she's got no provision, she's got no protection. She is in a bad place. So she heads back to the land of bread because she hears that God brings bread to the land of bread. And on her way, she tells these two daughter-in-law she has, you stay here. You stay here, there's nothing for you back there. One of them goes home, Ruth goes with her. And as she goes back, everyone's like, look, yay, Naomi's back, yay, Naomi. She's like, don't call me Naomi. My name is Mrs. Bitterworth, Mara, right? Call me bitter because God has dealt bitter with me. My life is bitter. And she's facing this tension where she lives in a world where she believes that God is sovereign and God is good and God is powerful and he's all those things we grew up hearing, but my life stinks. So if my life stinks and God is good, then the only conclusion is that God must be against me, that God is opposing me, that God is causing all this sorrow in my life, that God is the source of my bitterness. That's the world she's living in. That's the tension. There is no hesed in her world. There is no faithfulness, right? And, and maybe some of us have been there or are there. Right? If God is so good and God loves me and we always talk about God's love, then why does this happen? Why does my life stink? That's, that's a tension that we live in all the time, right? And so that's where she is. And if you had just that chapter one until that last verse, it would seem like maybe God is against her. But then you have that last verse. We looked at it last week and two things come out of that last verse. It's just a crack, just a little, just a little bit of like light, maybe at the end of the tunnel. It reminds us, number one, that Ruth came along with Naomi. Naomi is not empty like she thinks she's got Ruth. And number two, they just so happen to show up at the beginning of the barley harvest, which is the first harvest of the year. It's the first time anything dead becomes alive. So maybe, just maybe God's doing something. Maybe, just maybe he is faithful. And so today, as we get into chapter two, we're gonna see that little that crack of light just get a little bit bigger. Not much, but just a little bit. And I told you before, this, this is not a series on how to and, and what to and four ways not to. This is a story about God's faithfulness. And in an ideal world, you don't break it apart into five weeks like we are. You just read the story in one whole thing because it's kind of a, a story that starts with brokenness and ends with redemption. We're gonna start with brokenness last week and eventually we're gonna get there. But remember, this is, this is ultimately about God's faithfulness. And so what I want, the only goal I really have for this series is for CBC to see that their God is loyal and faithful in his love so that when your life does stink, and it will, it will at some point, Maybe it's in 40 years when you are a widow. Maybe it's the miscarriage that happened last week. Maybe it's the job that I lost. Maybe it's a rebellious child. 
when your life does stink and you feel like God has not shown me loyal love, you can go back to stories like this one and the plethora of other ones that you can find in scripture and be reminded, no, 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 God is faithful even though he doesn't feel like it right now. That's the goal for us, okay, as we work through this book. All right, so we're gonna look today, chapter two, we're gonna get the whole thing and I'm gonna make a couple applications on the side just because that's what I do. But really, I want you to see God's faithfulness. All right, chapter two, verse one. If you haven't found it by now, you are not gonna find it. Here we go. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, no, that's not verse, that's verse two. Is there a verse one on the slide? Nope, so I don't have the slide. But let me read it right here. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, we get a little parentheses up front, okay? This is just like a... The narrator telling you something that you don't know, and he's going to introduce you to player number three in the story, a guy named Boaz. Apparently, Mrs. Bitterworth has a relative, actually her husband, and his name is Boaz. He is probably a contemporary of her husband, probably the same age as Elimelech was, a cousin of some kind. Think about family reunion every five years, the big family that comes. That's, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about necessarily first cousin, but some distant guy that you see in July 4th every other odd year or something, right? That's the kind of guy we're looking at right here. His name, Boaz, which means in him is strength. It's a good name, right? You're going to name a kid, don't name him Kilion, name him Boaz, right? Um, and it, it, notice what it says about him, that he is a worthy man, okay? This is, this is the Hebrew phrase now, ish gabor halil, right? It's, 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 I know that sounds funny. It is a, it's a really loaded phrase. It's translated a bunch of different ways because it's so loaded. Some of your translations say man of valor, some say man of influence, some say he's rich, all right, and there is a, there's a wealthy piece to that, sh- clearly, because he he's loaded. All right, he's got some money. But there's more than that there. This is the same phrase that is used in Judges, which remember, Ruth and Judges are contemporary, written probably by the same guy. It's the same phrase used about a guy named Gideon when God shows up and says, Hail, O mighty man of valor. Ish Gabor Halil, same exact phrase. It's a similar phrase to use of David's mighty warriors, the mighty men of David, kind of the Conan, Conan the barbarians of David, right? It's these, these fierce men. And I want to suggest to you that, that not only was Boaz just a good, wealthy dude, I want to suggest he was a warrior, he was a man of courage. Remember the time they're living in, the time of judges when guys would come in, they'd conquer him, God would raise up a guy and then this guy would take an army and go and kick butt and he'd come back. I wanna suggest that I bet to you when we get to heaven, we're gonna find out Boaz was one of these dudes. He's like special forces Bethlehem. Okay, that's what Boaz is. Because otherwise, why use this warrior language? Why use this man of valor? He is a man of integrity. He is a man of wealth. He is a reputation of courage. When he walks by, it's like Vito Corleone without the murder. And everyone just respects him. There goes a mighty man. That is Boaz, right? A man of strength. Contrast that to Elimelech, by the way, right? Whose name meaned meant my God is king. But when, when stuff gets hard, Elimelech leaves the land and fails to prosper. When stuff gets hard, Boaz stays in the land, 
fights the war and prospers. All right, good dude. This is a man's man, y'all. All right, this is, the, this is the dude of dudes, doesn't have lattes, doesn't own a V-neck, has no clue who Beyonce is, never test-driven a Miata. Okay, that's Boaz. That's our guy. All right. And one other fact about this guy that's awesome is that he's single. Now, why he's single and he's older and wealthy? I don't know. Maybe he's got like this massive unibrow. Maybe he walks around like Quasimodo. I don't know. But whatever it is, in God's providence, Boaz is single. All right. So that's, that's kind of the backdrop of what's going on. No one else knows that. Ruth doesn't know that. Naomi doesn't know all that yet. You know that before the story unpacks. Verse two. And Ruth the Moabite, notice they won't let you forget that she's a Moabite. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to this field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. That's an important phrase. You can underline it if you're an underliner. And she said, go, my daughter. You're introduced to this idea of gleaning. Gleaning is a very biblical word. It's a very Old Testament word. But here, here's the idea. This is God's way of providing for the poor in Israel. This is his social services. This is his food bank. This is how it worked. Okay, when a, per, when a guy went through his field and he would cut the stalks, that was kind of the guy job. And the behind the guys would be the ladies and they'd be picking up the stalks and they'd be putting it in bushels. Anything that fell to the ground, all right, there was no seven second rule, no three second rule, you weren't allowed to pick it up. You had to leave it there, that was for the poor. Okay, that and you weren't supposed to cut your corners of your field, kind of rounded the corner. And if you're real generous, those guys would you know, make the corners real round, right? And that was so that the poor could come and they could glean in your field and provide for themselves. Notice it wasn't a handout. It wasn't them just sitting on the side giving them food. The poor and the wealthy worked for their food, right? That was the idea in Israel. But this was God's way of providing for the poor. You would just let them take the corners and take anything that fell. She goes to her mother-in-law, hey, I want to go glean in someone that I may find favor, or the word is grace. And her mother-in-law says, yeah, go ahead. All right? Go ahead and do it. Right? Here, here's, here's just a real practical piece. Here's application piece. I don't have a slide for it, but here's application piece. Here's Ruth in a new town. She knows absolutely no one. She's hungry. She's probably scared. She's lonely. But what does she do? She goes to work. She does what is obvious. She does what is next. You got a lot of Christians, you know, wringing their hand. What's God's will for my life? What should I do next? I don't know what to do. And we just sit around waiting for God to come down in the Shekinah glory cloud and to reveal what is God's will. Let me, let me tell you. 99% of God's will for your life is right in front of you. It is the very next thing. What is in front of Ruth? I have to eat. If I don't eat, we starve. All right, if I'm gonna eat, we gotta go get some food. If I'm gonna get some food, I gotta go to work. So what's, the, what's God's will for her life? It's go to work, Ruth. That's God's will for her life. It's not some super spiritual, mystical thing, right? It, and we got to get over the idea that we have to have some grand vision for 5, 10, 15, 25 years down the road, what God's going to do in my life. Look, there's nothing wrong with planning. There's nothing wrong with goals. But God's will for your life is to do what is right next. What's, what's the next thing? 
right? For our church, are we talking about five years? Yes. Are we talking about what's after that? Yes. We've been talking about and praying about planning a church for years. God hasn't opened that door. It seems like now it's, cl- it's closer than ever. Great. But do you know what really is next? You want to know what's next for us as a church? Is that we, every week, gather to worship, to be encouraged from the Word of God, to learn something, and then you leave here and you go reach people in Savannah with the gospel. That is next. That's every week. Come in, gather, build up, encourage, read scripture, leave, go reach people with the gospel. That is next. Right? Whether or not we go to Pooler or Richmond Hill or where, next. Some of you are like, I just want to grow. I want to grow. I want to get connected. You know, great. You know what's next? You need to get into a community group. Yeah, I know. I've been, I've been knowing that for six years now. Yeah, exactly. What's next? I, I need to learn to know some people. Jump on a service team. Join the church. Okay, these are not rocket science things. It's just that's what's next. That's what's next. Movement, action trumps everything. God's will, God's purpose, God's design is often discovered as you're moving. And I know that seems so secular to some of y'all. And I'm sorry about that. So unspectacular, but read your Bible. How, how does it work usually? Moses is taking care of sheep for 40 years. And one day when he goes out to take sheep, there's a bush on fire. What was he doing? Taking care of sheep. All right. That's, that's pretty normal. Right? David is just taking some PB&Js to his brothers. And then there's Goliath. Just doing the next thing. What his daddy told him to do. Right? I mean, Peter, Andrew, brothers, Jesus comes and calls them to be disciples. What are they doing? Fishing. Actually, they didn't fish like that. They used nets. Okay, so. Nehemiah. What's he doing? Well, Hitting the hooch, drinking the wine for the king, right? He's drink, checking, the, checking the wine so the king doesn't get poisoned when God show, shows up and calls him. These are no, that's the next thing. It's just the next thing, right? And, and you don't have to figure out where, what, how, who. Just do the next thing. So the next thing for some of you, show up at work tomorrow and be a great employee. Some of you, write the paper. Some of you, show up at practice, Show up at your community group. When you sign up to be somewhere at 9.15 at the church, be there at 9.15 at the church. Do the next thing, whatever it is. We cannot separate the work of God from mundane and minutia because that's where he often works. That's where he works. It's just you be faithful with what's next. I can tell you, people ask me all the time. So if you're asking me, oh, Bill, I'm really thinking about seminary and how did you get to seminary? I have no clue. I don't even remember. All I know is I was a PE teacher one minute. The next minute I'm in Greek class. And I'm like, how did that happen? It was not like Shekinah glory, no angel pointing like this, you know. I just showed up and the next thing I know, I'm in Dallas. And it almost feels like that. Same way how I got to Savannah. I don't know how I got here. Here we are. I just was doing what's next. And then I was like, God said, oh, here you go. You're going to go down here. All right. And so... Being faithful in the minutia, in the insignificant. I can tell you, I learned more from just serving in the church of 50 to 70 people in Dallas where I was filling grape juice things every week and teaching a college lesson to two college students, right? Then I did most of my seminary classes. I learned more about work and humility, serving in the summers and in the early mornings when I was a school teacher, 
tying down mobile homes than I did in systematic theology. It's just, it's just, that's where God matures and grows and does. And see, when, when you're just faithful, look what happens next, verse three. And she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come, underline that, to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Here's what she does. She walks out of the side of the gates of the city and she sees just fields. I mean, it's just fields. And every field has a little sign or a little stone that says Joe belongs here or something, right? It's, it's their markers for whose field it is. In her mind, she's got all these potential opportunities. It's just, a, just fields. And so she's thinking, where am I gonna go? Well, there's a bunch of folks over there. I'll just go over there. She chooses, it's her free will, whatever you wanna use. By her perspective, she's just going, I'm just doing what's next. What's next means work. Work means there's people over there. I'm going to that field. But what the author, he's having a little fun with you. He says, she just happened. Lucky gal, by chance, she just happens to show up to the field that belongs to who? Boaz. And so here's the double, here, here's kind of the tension we see. What, what's next? Do what's next. And as you just do it next, what, what do we trust that God will do? His sovereign hand will lead you to the field of Boaz, whatever that is. See, that, that's, just, just, you're just faithful with the next. You take, let him take care of the big things because you can't control the big things anyway. I mean, you can't. So all you have to do is be faithful with what's next, right? What's next? That's what's next. And so he does that, right? He, she shows up, here's Boaz, boom, she's in his field, right? He's in his field. What happens next? Verse four, and behold, and the narrator wants you to see this now, he brings you in. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Up comes an F-250, right? And out of that F-250 pops Boaz. And what's he say? He tells his workers, the Lord be with you. And they respond, the Lord bless you. How good of a boss is Boaz? I mean, he, one week he's killing people in war, going to war. The next week he's quoting Bible verses to his employees. And he's driving a 250. This is a good dude. Defender of Israel, kind boss, encouraging his employees. They love him. This is a good man. Right? And he looks out and he sees, and wait a minute, there's a new gal over there. And so he asks, he says to his young man who was in charge, this is the brand new guy right out of Georgia Southern. He's wearing his visor. He's got his clipboard. He says, hey, who's that lady? Who's that new gal? All right? And what he's not saying is, man, she's hot. All right, I know some of you are like, oh, I've heard, yeah, he's love at first sight. He is an old man. She's a young gal. Not that old men can't say, oh, it's a pretty girl, but he's not looking for a wife, all right? He's, he didn't show up looking for a wife, nor did Ruth show up looking for a husband. She didn't spend seven hours getting ready. Boaz might be there this morning. I gotta get my, my stuff on. Right. She's sweaty. She's nasty. She smells. Her hair's back in a you know, ponytail. She is there to provide for her mother-in-law. So don't read more into it that's there. All right, but he says, who's that gal? And young Georgia Southern graduate says this, servant in charge of the reapers answered, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the, from the country of Moab. That's, that's Mrs. Bitterworth's daughter-in-law. You know, you've heard about her, right? And she came and says, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves. 
So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. He, he said, hey, that, that's that, that Moabite girl. But let me tell you, Bo, Boaz, this girl is a rock star. She was here first thing this morning. She has been busting her tail all morning and she's taken one little break and that is it. She's a worker, let me just tell you, right? And here, here's another kind of side application, kind of a pet peeve of, this is a hot issue for some of us, but that's just the way it is. But um, we have a culture that is super lazy. All right, we have a lazy culture that they want stuff, but they don't want to do anything to get it. And if you have it, they ought to have it because you have it. So I graduated from college. I should be making $100,000 a year. Why? Because my dad does. And I should have the same house and the same cars and the same everything because my dad does. And I want an A, but I don't want to work for an A. And I want to get into that college, but I don't want to work hard to get into that college. And I want the promotion, but I want to do as little as possible to get by. That is the culture that we are living in, y'all. Or it's, I want to work really hard for 25 years, so then I can be lazy and do nothing. Right? And let me tell you, both are wrong and laziness is, it's wickedness, y'all. I know you don't think you're like, drunkenness, wickedness, drugs, wickedness, laziness, eh, Southern. That's what you think. Okay. <laughs> laziness is sin. A lazy person is a wicked person. It's, read the Proverbs. We did a whole sermon on this last summer. You can go back and listen to it. But work is, is you're part of the image of God. You are created to work. And what I mean work, I don't talk, I'm not talking about getting paid per se. Some of you are gonna work a job, you get paid. Some of you are never. And that's fine. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about you were born to do something and not sit around and do nothing. And, and let me just address parents because, you know, if you're 45, it may, you know, it's not too late for you. If you're 45 and lazy, you just need to wake up. But let me, let me, just the next generation, all right? Parents, you need to teach your children to work. If they don't have chores and responsibilities, if they're not carrying weight, then you are not being a good parent. I'm sorry. You're just not. They need, by the time they are preteen or teenagers, to actually be carrying weight so that the family is somehow dependent on them. Not because it's just helpful, although it is. Because I don't like doing dishes. I can do dishes, but it's helpful that I don't have to do dishes. Not, not just so that. Here's, here's ultimately why. Nothing, and this is something that kind of mentor in my life has taught me, and I've listened and I'm trying to learn. Nothing in life teaches humility better, except for maybe suffering, than work. All right? Work is a great place to learn humility. Which, by the way, notice the humility of Ruth who says to her mother-in-law, can I please? And she says yes. And he goes to this foreman, can I please? There's humbleness there. Nothing teaches humility as good. And you could send your kids to Bible study and camp and blah, blah, blah. There's nothing that teaches humility to a 13-year-old boy better than having to do something that makes him sweat, that is hard, that no one rescues him from. And him just having to wrestle through that and struggle. And then at the end of the day, making $4 and quoting Napoleon Dynamite, that's like a dollar an hour. Yes, that's exactly right. So that he sees, wait a minute, my mom and dad do this all the time. 
They pay for gas, they pay for food, they pay for insurance, they pay for all these things. They are way more powerful than I am. And I'll tell you, when there's a respect for parents because of things like that, that is a child that you can teach some truth to then. That is a child that you can teach some Bible study to after he learns the humility piece, right? And I'm talking about boys and and I'm talking about your little princesses too, y'all. Yes, we want them to dress up as Jasmine and all that fun stuff, yes. But you know what else? They need to sweat. They need to, they need to work. They, they need to, they, they may, maybe not the same kind of work, but they need to work too, right? They, they need to get dirty. They need to do chores. You need to teach them how to pump gas so that one day they can do it because this is not like the 80s when everyone got their gas pumped for you. You gotta do it now, Right? It's a, it's a, it is a spiritual piece, y'all. I know it doesn't feel it. It is a spiritual issue. It is spiritual, especially in a culture of laziness. I need to learn to work. Ruth is working. And in doing so, she is modeling the image of God and what it means to be woman, what it means to be feminine, right? And, and look, I'm getting in off these rabbit trails, but I'm, I'm willing to go there because it's the summer, Okay. Men and women are different. I don't care what you've heard. I don't care what psychology class you've taken. God created male and female in the image of God. He created them male and female, distinct, equal, but different. And each male and female reflects the image of God in a different way, in a perfect and good way. And one of the ways and one of the purposes of woman is she is to come alongside, that she is the helper. It is not a derogatory term. It is a positive term. It is used of the Holy Spirit. And she gives strength and she gives life and she gives energy. What is Ruth doing to her family? Giving strength, giving life, giving energy. Right? That is what she is doing. She is modeling the image of God in the way she is working. And by the way, so is Boaz. He is modeling the image of God and what it means to be male. Three things, and again, this comes down from my mentor, didn't, didn't kind of invent it, but it's kind of the material I've stolen. I'm trying to teach my boys. The, the core of manhood, of being male, the three things, three Ps, pursue, protect, Provide. Talking to my little eight and 10 year olds last night, I'm having them repeat it. Pursue, protect, provide. He does those things. Ladies, you're looking for a guy? Is he a, does he pursue? Does he protect? Can he provide? He can sum it down into two questions. You go up to a guy, he says, I wanna go out with you. Okay, I got two questions for you. Do you love Jesus? Where do you work? <laughs> All right. Okay, that's it. That's the Jesus job, the JJ. That's all you gotta worry about. Those are your two things, right? But look at, look at how Boaz pursues, provides, protects. Verse eight, Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter. Who's the one who talks first? Boaz. And he is not pursuing a wife, by the way. He is pursuing her as a, as a daughter. Look, my daughter. He is pursuing, he is initiating. He is going to, to bring her into the fold. He says, do not glean in another field or leave, or leave this one. Keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field they are reaping and go after them. He has pursued, he has provided. He's saying, you don't need to go anywhere else. This is your field. You stay here for the rest of your time. He is protecting. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? In that culture, a, a, a single woman, no dad, no brothers to protect her? She was, she was just easy pickings. She could be picked on, she could be abused. Why? Because there's no one's gonna pay back. Someone picks on her and she has a dad, he's gonna come and lay the hammer down. Someone picks on her, she's got a brother, he's gonna come. 
She's got nobody. So he, he goes to these men, probably in their presence and says, y'all, is a big field? You mess with her, they'll never find you. <laughs> I've charged them not to touch you, not to harass you. Protection. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink with the men. Provision. And she's blown away. Look what she says. She falls on her face, bowing to the ground and said, why have I found, there's that word, we, saw, we said it earlier, had you underlined it, favor. Why have I found favor? That you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner. She understands the social structure of the day. In the social structure of the day, she is at the low end of the totem pole. You start off with like, you know, the judge and then you get on a priest, blah, 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 blah. The lowest on the totem pole would be a foreigner who was a woman. She is at the bottom. And she says, you have shown me grace and I am a no one. Why? And he says, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your mother and father, your native land, and came to a people that you did not know before. He said, I heard what's going on. I heard what you did. You've shown hesed. And you, were, you, and you didn't have to. And, and what I think is the most important verse, maybe in the book, verse 12. He says, may Yahweh, the Lord, repay you for what you've done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. And here's this, this language, this zoomorphic language. It's, it's where we take an animal and give the attributes of an animal and give, and give it to God. And she said, he said, you've come under the wings of God. Like a mother bird who has the, kind of the, the hens under, under the wings. That's what you've done to Yahweh. You left Chemosh, the God of, of Moab. You've come to Yahweh. You've, you've got refuge under his wings. May he reward you. By the way, just put a little star by this little verse. We're going to see it next week. Okay, that's a little foretaste of what's coming. I ain't going to spoil it for you. But this verse is important next week. He says, but this is why. May God make you full that's his prayer for her. And here's the really cool thing. God is gonna make her full and it's gonna be because of him and he has no clue yet. He is gonna be the very answer to his own prayer for her. And that, let me suggest just a little, another practical piece is the way God works. When you're praying for something, many times you are the solution to your prayer. God, get to my kids' hearts. Okay, what are you gonna do? I'm gonna do it, but I'm gonna do it through you. Reach my neighbor for Jesus. Have Pastor Bill help to run into him in the Publix. No, no, no. You. <laughs> right? Help me to get the scholarship. Awesome. You better write well. You better work hard. All right? You're going to be a solution to many of your prayers God is going to use. Right? And we ought to be looking for that. Right? Nehemiah, Lord, give me favor. Let me do this. Boom. Okay, you demand. All right? So just a small piece that he's going to be that. Right? Um, verse 13, and she says, I found favor in your eyes. Again, the same word, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoke kindly to your servant, for I am not even one of your servants. I just, I'm a nobody. And here's what I love. I love this. At mealtime, Boaz said, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. You know, mealtime is so awkward when you're new. You remember high school, you switch to a new high school, you come in, what are you, you're, you're the only guy, gal sitting at the table, you're all alone eating your pizza. You're like, this is awful. Just highlights how lonely you are. How meaningful if the quarterback of the football team says, hey, come sit with me. How awesome is that? It's like Lucas. Remember Lucas, the movie from the 80s? Come on, y'all know, Charlie Sheen. It's that. Who's gonna mess with you when you're sitting next to the quarterback? Nobody. That's what he does. Hey, 
come, come dip your bread. It's like Carabas. Dip your bread in the oil. Come on. Sit with us. Eat with all of us. So she sat beside the reapers. He passed her the roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied. She even had leftovers. And here's my favorite part. She goes back to work and Boaz gets his wife. Come here, y'all, come here. All right, let her glean among the sheaves and do, do not reproach her, don't harass her. You just let her go wherever she wants. And here, here's, the, here's I love this. And, and pull some of your, your grain out from the bundles and leave it for her to glean and don't rebuke her. He's like, just throw some out there. Give them her extra. He is inviting them into this idea of being generous. Okay, another practical piece here. A mark of God's people, Old Testament, New Testament, both has always been generosity. Always, right? And he is picturing for us what God does for us. He's saying, this is my field, y'all. I own this field. I own every piece of grain in this field. I own every piece of everything. So what I'm gonna do is this. I want you to take the grain that I have, it's mine, and I want you to have it in your hands and I want you to give it to her. So he is, he is inviting them into the generosity process. Same thing God was, does with us. I've given you this, I've given you this, I've given you this. Now I'm gonna invite you to take my stuff, which is in your hands, and give it to other people. It's, it's, he's picturing God. There's no agenda. He's not like, man, she'll think I'm hot if I give her this stuff. Right? He's, he, there's no agenda. He's just giving. Why? Number one, he loves God. Here's a number, another piece, and, and I think it's, kind of underneath the surface. Why would he be so generous to this foreign woman? Because if you look in his genealogy, somewhere up the line, there's this woman, her name is Rahab. And she was a foreign prostitute. And someone brought her into the people of Israel, a guy named Salmon. His name means fish, but not really. <laughs> Just a lighthearted moment there for you. This guy named Salmon marries this Jericho prostitute named Rahab and they have a son who has a son and we don't know exactly where in the line, but guess who's a relative of that lady, Boaz. Why is he so generous to this foreign lady? Because he looks back at grandmother or great-grandmother, whoever it is, and says, my grandmother. Someone was gracious, so I'm gonna be gracious. This is the Christian life for us, y'all. God has been gracious and generous. Oh, how? I'm poor. Because he gave his son, he murdered his son for you so that now you could go give your life for others. I had a great discussion with my kids this week and it was around breakfast cereal. Bought my son, he said, can I get Reese's cereal? I'm like, yes, you can. And so he bought him this Reese's, he said, I wanna put my name on it. I said, why do you wanna do that? So no one else eats it. I said, I want you to remember something. Remember early in the week, I had a box of Honey Smacks that was mine. I only got one bowl of those honey smacks because all y'all ate those and I didn't complain and I didn't say nothing. Why? Because I want to be generous. And since I was generous with my honey smacks, can you be generous with your Reese's? I can. That is exactly what God's saying to us. I have been generous with my stuff so that now you can give your stuff away. It's just a piece that you see constantly through the scripture. God has given us things so that we can not just give our 10%, not just our corner of the field, that we give our lives. I'm running out of time. That's because Ethan went long, not me. Verse 17. <laughs> Is that what we're at? Yeah, verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephith of barley. It's about 30 pounds. That's a lot of the grain. It's so much grain that when she goes home, so she takes it home and went to the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned and she, you know, her mother-in-law's sitting at home under the blanket watching like Phil Donahue reruns or something and she sees her come in and she's like, she's almost like 
what are you, where did you go today? Did you steal? What happened? She gives her her leftovers from lunch. She gives her all this. She says, uh, where, where did you glean? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked. And she said, yeah, the guy's name was, um, oh, it's Boaz. And that's when she's like, what? Naomi said, may, the Lord, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, whose hesed has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, the man is a close relative of ours. He is one of our, new word we haven't seen yet, redeemers. He's a goel. We'll see this unpacked next couple of weeks. He's the one that can actually fix this mess we're in if he, if he seeks to do so. And this guy, Boaz, is going to picture another one, another redeemer who just so happens to come from his family that fixes our sin issue, Jesus of Nazareth. And so he says, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished. He says, stay with me all harvest. And so she says, do it. It's good, my daughter, that you go with this young man, lest you be in another field, you get assaulted. So keep close to him. And so she does. She stays all the way through the summer harvests with this guy. And at the end of the chapter two, the crack has gone, the crack of hope has gone from this to this. It's not open yet. There's a lot of kind of what's gonna happen. We don't know, but it's a lot brighter than it was at the end of one right? God's faithfulness. We're going to see it as we go through next week. And you can read ahead as, as long as you don't read chapter four, if you've never read it before, like I said last week. Let me just, a couple questions and we'll move to worship real quick. Number one, and these are application questions for you. Maybe you and your husband, maybe you and your roommates, maybe you and your buddies, maybe you and your community group. But here's some questions. What does it look like for you next to be faithful? Just what does faithfulness look like next for you? And, and you know, you may say that's mundane. It might be doing laundry. Yeah, it may be mundane, but that's okay. What does it look like to be faithful? Because the reality is there's many of us who are not being faithful, right? So what, talking about that can help. What, what does it look like to be faithful? Question two, how are you specifically modeling what it means to be male and female in this world? And I know this is a hot issue and I'm just kind of throwing it out there and we'll probably deal with it more in the future. But if, you're, if you have questions, if you're like, well, I didn't know there was a difference. Come talk to us because we got lots of resources we'd like to put in your hand so that you understand that God has made you male or female and that is good and that you were made to reflect his image in a, in a beautiful way, but it's gonna be distinct from the opposite sex and it should be. And that is a good thing. It is on purpose, okay? So how, how are you modeling men? Protect, provide, pursue. You're like, well, I'm not married. Well, there's sisters in Christ around you and there's people at work and there's all sorts of things and you got a younger brother and these things and, and ladies bringing life and bringing energy and bringing strength like the Holy Spirit to wherever you're at. It's an important piece of who we are as we follow Jesus. Question three, where are there opportunities for you to be generous? Um, just where? And I mean, I, you know, I know I get, I get the 10%, 10% idea. Yeah, we give the first to the church. I, that's a given. It kind of, it's kind of like, that's the starting place, right? I'm talking about not just, we're not talking about just, oh, I'll just get barely cut the corners of my field. I'm talking about living a life of generosity. We got so many generous people in this church, but I'm, I just, we want that to be the character. God is a rewarder of those who seek them, that we store up treasure in heaven. I want you guys to be so rich in heaven because of the treasure you stored up. And I'll just sit back there and clap because I'll be so proud to see what God has done. But just think about that. Where's opportunities for you to be generous? Um, and number four, and this, and this is something that brought up in our, in our sermon meeting this week, and it wasn't my point, but it's a great point. I think Cleland came up with it, is that when, when times are dark 
And this is a dark time in Israel. Every, every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's how it's characterized, right? When times are dark, a Ruth and a Boaz shine bright. They make huge impact. And I know everybody's, oh, it's so bad. America's going down. Good, because the Ruth and the Boazes will come to rise to the top. And I don't want our nation to fail in any way. But what I do want is the church to stop blending in. That's what I want. I don't want the church to be part of the Southern culture of this. I want the church of Jesus to look like Jesus. And that's what he wants. And so be encouraged when it gets super dark, the light shines brighter. The Ruth, the Boaz on SCAD campus, at a Gulf Stream, over here at Jenkins, on Main Street, wherever. And so that's what we wanna be. I've gone over, I'm sorry, I'm not. Stand up, let's worship. <laughs> Father, I pray um, as we sing that your son would receive glory and praise and honor. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your hesed um, you've shown to us. Please, as we respond to it now, like Ethan said earlier, we respond to truth with worship. So as we respond now, let us do so with a heart that is pure. Um, Father, as we work through this in our, in our lives this week, pray for someone here that may not know Christ, Lord, know that they can have forgiveness of sins just simply by believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as their substitute who died in their place. And so just be moving in many ways we can't even see. We ask Holy Spirit uh, for the name of Christ, amen.